This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Subcommittee on African Affairs and Global Health Policy will come to order. Uh, I served as a ranking uh, uh, member on this subcommittee for the past two years. Uh, I've long had an interest uh, in African affairs and have had the opportunity, as we spoke, to uh, spend some time there. And it's an honor now to serve as chairman of this subcommittee and uh, to be able to examine some of the pressing needs uh, on the continent uh, that sometimes receives too little attention. There seems to be a perpetual focus from the outside on foreign assistance to Africa, whether it's helping to stop the spread of AIDS or Ebola or providing humanitarian assistance to those suffering from drought um, or to uh, aid those who've been displaced due to a crisis. Uh, much of this assistance is obviously critical. However, these countries want to develop their own economies and to reach a point where they're not uh, so dependent on foreign aid. Africa is home to six of the 10 fastest growing economies in the world. Real incomes across the continents have increased by 30% over the past 10 years. And by 2040, Africa is expected to have a larger workforce than China. Uh, in uh, addition, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa's consumer base of nearly 1 billion people is rapidly growing. It has the potential to create increased demand for U.S. Uh, goods, services, and technologies. U.S. private sector interest in tapping the economic potential of the continent is increasing, though our presence lags behind many of our partners and competitors in Europe and Asia. Now, part of this discrepancy stems uh, from a lack of opportunity in promising countries. Uh, in part, it stems from real challenges posed by weak governance or poor infrastructure in other countries. Now, held last August, the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit sought to highlight some of that promise and to address the uh, challenges to greater investment on the continent. The subject included the U.S.-Africa Business Forum, which brought together business leaders and heads of state and provided a venue for U.S. investors to develop new business relationships on the continent. For companies with a long-standing presence in Africa, uh, the day offered an opportunity for both uh, uh, to reinforce relationships and discuss solutions to policy challenges. Now, today's hearing will further explore the investment climate in Africa seven months after the conclusion of the summit and to look at policies uh, that uh, have emerged um, and policies that encourage or hinder the kind of growth that can lead to economic security on the continent. We'll hear from witnesses who are in the forefront of investing in Africa. We've invited uh, them in order to hear firsthand about the potential for growth, as well as about the policies and practices, uh, both on our part and the part of Africans, uh, that will create an attractive uh, business climate. In gathering ideas on how best to uh, support market potential, we'll hear from the Center for Global Development, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the two organizations that closely uh, analyze economic growth in Africa. And each of our witnesses today brings a unique perspective to the issue at hand. I have no doubt that they'll contribute greatly to the debate. I thank you each for your time and for sharing your experience. Uh, I look forward to your testimony. And with that, I'll recognize the, the ranking member, Senator Markey, for his comments. And uh, glad to have Senator Markey on this committee, and we serve together in the House and travel together, and and we'll work well together, I'm sure, here. No, and I know we will, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you uh, so much for recognizing me, and thank you so much for calling this very important uh, hearing. When Robert F. Kennedy met anti-apartheid activists in South Africa in 1966, he famously said, he famously said it is from 
numberless, diverse acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped. Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Inspired by those empowering words, I look forward to working with uh, Senator Flake and the other members of this committee uh, to add our own ripples of hope to the currents of change moving across Africa today. In this subcommittee, I think we have several opportunities to have our actions ripple across countries and ocean away. One, building a clean, affordable energy backbone in Africa. Power Africa is a critical part of improving the lives of millions of people in Africa and supporting economic development across the continent. Power Africa is starting strong as a presidential initiative, and I am hopeful that this body can come up with a path forward to pass Energize Africa legislation and enshrine in U.S. law the importance of focusing on increasing access to, ele to electricity in Africa. I know Senator Coons has given great leadership on that issue, and I'm looking forward to working with him and Senator Flake and other members of the committee. Two, public health improvements. We need to focus on improving health sector capacity across the continent so that the incredible gains of PEPFAR and other initiatives can continue so that we can understand how to prevent the disastrous spread of diseases as basic as malaria and gripping as Ebola. Three, target poachers and their operations to protect wildlife. In recent years, poaching has taken a devastating toll on some of Africa's most iconic and imperiled wildlife. There is increasing evidence that some poaching is also helping to finance conflicts. It is critical that we do all that we can to prevent wildlife trafficking including by tithing those who finance it. Four, work with African countries to provide for their own security and prevent the spread of nuclear bomb material. The summit highlighted new programs that seek to build Africa's peacekeeping response capacity, strengthen its institutions, focus on security, improve early warning systems for conflict. These are critical. And finally, thanks to the work of the Center for Public Integrity, and the Washington Post, we now have reason to be concerned about South Africa's stockpile of almost 500 pounds of highly enriched uranium, combined with concerns about Africa as a transit point for en enriched uranium. South Africa's vulnerable stockpile is something that merits real attention. Five, help prepare Africa for climate change. The Africa Summit uh, reiterated the Obama administration's support for increasing resilience among communities in uh, all of the southern part of Africa that are already vulnerable to extreme weather. Climate change isn't just supercharging blizzards in Boston, it's impacting floods in Malawi and forest fires in South Africa and even worsening droughts like those in Somalia. All of these issues must be discussed uh, because they represent some of the central issues facing Africa today where partnership with the American government and companies can drive progress. Africa is a continent rich in economic and social potential. We must prioritize investment in Africa's future or our influence will wane in the wake of large commitments from Europe and China. 
And we must also ask, how can we address the essential challenges that inhibit Africa's uh, uh, nation's growth? Because when people cannot access enough electricity to power homes, how can we expect their full participation in the local economy? When families cannot keep their children healthy because a constant battle with disease is occurring, how can parents put them in school or go to work? When natural disasters prevent the building of resilient communities, how can countries build resilient economies? Today, I hope to learn from our witnesses how the policy initiatives under the summit are proceeding. I think it is essential to know how this body can be helpful in paving the way for increased U.S. investment in Africa in a variety of arenas. I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for calling this very important hearing. Thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, just wanted to note also how nice it is to have Senator Isaacson here. And uh, he has long had an interest in Africa and uh, uh, on a number of fronts and has traveled extensively on the continent and look forward to trying to tap his expertise as we go along here. Uh, but we'll be joined, I'm sure, by Senator Coons and some others as we go along. Let's turn now to the witnesses. Our first witness is Ben Leo. And Mr. Leo is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development and is director of the Rethinking U.S. Development Policy Initiative. This initiative seeks to broaden US, the U.S. government's approach to development, including a full range of investment, trade, and technology policies, uh, while also strengthening existing foreign assistance tools. Mr. Leo's research primarily focuses on the rapid, rapid, uh, rapidly changing development finance environment, uh, with particular emphasis on private capital flows, infrastructure, and debt dynamics. In addition, he's uh, testing a range of new technological methods for collecting high-frequency information about citizens' development priorities. Our second witness will be Del Reniger. Mr. Reniger is GE Corporate Council, uh, Corporate Senior Counsel for Global Government Affairs and Policy. He advises all GE or businesses on public policy, trade, investment, national security, and government relation issues in um, Africa. Uh, the Middle East and South Asia. Mr. Reniger also served as a staff representative to the President's Advisory Committee on Doing Business in Africa. Before joining GE, <clears throat> Dell served as Director of Inter International Economics for the Western Hemisphere on the National Security Council and as Senior Counsel to the General Counsel and Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Commerce, where he counseled the Office of the Secretary, uh, the Bureau of Industry uh, and Security and International Trade Administration, on trade, foreign policy, and national security issues. Our third witness will be Susan Tuttle. Ms. Tuttle is currently the Director of Middle East and Africa for IBM's Government and Regulatory Affairs Office and has geographic responsibility for initiatives to support IBM's business and expansion efforts across Africa and the Middle East. Over her 30-year career with IBM, Ms. Tuttle has worked with governments all over the world on public policy issues related to technology and innovation <coughs> Uh, with key focus on skills and talent development, research IPR, and policy-related infrastructure. And Ms. Tuttle is on the Board of Directors and Executive Committee of the Corporate Council on Africa and chairs its ICT Working Group. She's also on the Board of Directors for Global Win, which is a global women's innovation network. Our fourth witness is uh, uh, Tom Boyke. Mr. Boyke is Senior Fellow for Global Health, Economics, and Development for the, at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University and a consultant uh, to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Prior to joining CFR, Mr. Boyke was a fellow at the Center for Global Development and Director of Intellectual Property and Pharmaceutical Policy at the Office of U.S. Trade Investment uh, 
He is also a Fulbright Scholar to South Africa, where he worked as staff attorney at the, law, uh, at, at the AIDS Law Project on treatment access uh, issues related to HIV AIDS. Thank you all for being here. I think we all recognize uh, what uh, expertise you all carry, and it's significant. Uh, we might remind you, your full statements will be included in the record. If you could keep your comments uh, to close to five minutes, that would uh, be great, so we can allow time for questioning from all of our members. With that, uh, Mr. Leo. Thank you, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Markey, and Senator Isaacson. This hearing is, is very well-timed following the Leader Summit last year, and several issues that Congress will be considering this year, such as AGOA reauthorization and the Energize and Electrify Africa Acts. My remarks focus on three major U.S. policy gaps and how Congress can help to address them. These include passing Energize and Electrify Africa legislation, two, modernizing U.S. development finance tools, and three, urging the administration to negotiate more investment treaties. Each of these pose no incremental budgetary cost and reflect a simple fact. Private investment is key to African growth and U.S. policy objectives in this increasingly important region. African growth has averaged about 5% a year since 2000, exceeding levels in many other regions. FDI has increased sixfold, and inflation, which is historically a major problem, is dramatically lower than it was in the 80s and 90s. The region has a promising future despite many challenges and will be home to uh, new emerging major markets such as Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Kenya. Above all else, Africans increasingly desire an American partner that helps to deliver economic opportunities, primarily through greater trade and investment. U.S. government approaches such as Power Africa are starting to reflect these realities, but much more is needed. Most U.S. aid programs are simply not designed or equipped to address these shifting realities. We need to emphasize new tools that promote U.S. investment and leverage America's greatest strengths. Emerging actors such as China understand these dynamics extremely well. The question is whether we are ready and willing to compete. First, Congress should pass Energize and Electrify Africa legislation. Such action would send a very strong signal to African leaders, businesses, and people that the United States is a strategic and long-term partner. Unreliable and costly electricity is a major competitiveness and human development constraint in nearly every African country. President Obama's uh, Power Africa Initiative is in doing very important work to address this, yet there is a risk of losing momentum, uh, particularly after the current administration leaves office. Passing authorizing legislation would make it a durable bipartisan effort. This legislation should include clear reporting targets, multi-year authorization for OPIC, and an exemption from carbon cap rules for the poorest, lowest emitting countries. Second. Congress should modernize U.S. development finance tools by creating a U.S. Development Finance Corporation, or a USDFC. America's development institution, uh, finance institution, OPIC, is a little-known um, development agency that provides seed capital and risk insurance for U.S. investors entering emerging markets. It operates on a self-sustaining basis 
and has provided net transfers to the U.S. Treasury for nearly 40 consecutive years. Yet it is underutilized, has not really adapted since the 1970s, and is hamstrung by outdated or misdirected restrictions. Beyond OPIC, many other U.S. investment tools are spread across numerous agencies, which leads to bureaucratic fights, inefficiencies, and delays. A reformed and enhanced OPIC would form the foundation of the USDFC, and it would bring together all the capabilities that are scattered across the US government. Importantly, this is about consolidating existing tools, making them better, and delivering better results. It's all at no incremental cost to, to, to US taxpayers. It's not about bigger government or corporate welfare. It's about making what we have better. This proposal will require bold congressional leadership, yet by simultaneously reforming OPIC and providing it with consolidated authorities, the U.S. government would ensure that its, US, its development finance tools are fit for purpose in, in uh, today's global needs. Third, Congress should urge the Obama administration to, legally, to pursue legally binding bilateral investment treaties, or BITS. These treaties encourage investment by providing investors with protections against things like expropriation or fickle legal systems. However, the U.S. has only ratified six agreements to date with African countries, covering a mere 7% of regional GDP. Countries like China and Canada have demonstrated that African governments are ready and willing to sign these agreements. While Beijing and Ottawa have been busy inking new deals, USTR has been pursuing a ineffectual, non-legally binding trade and investment framework agreements. It's time to stop allocating scarce resources to these talk shops and start negotiating real agreements that have impact for U.S. investors and on promoting economic growth in the region. In conclusion, private investment is key to African growth and ensuring that the region's growing youth bulge finds meaningful opportunities. It matters for our security, it matters for our commercial policy and our foreign policy. If we fail to act on this agenda and build real momentum after the Leaders' Summit, then America's influence and relevance will be further eroded. There is no question that other actors, such as China, will fill America's leadership void. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Leo. Uh, Mr. Renegar. Good morning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ranking Member Markey and, and Senator Isaacson. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Del Renegar with General Electric. As you may know, GE has a rich history in Africa going back more than 100 years. Today, we have over 2,300 employees across 25 countries, and Africa has been one of our fastest growing regions in recent years for the entire company. Given this history and these opportunities, GE sought to maximize its participation in the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. With more than 30 leaders in town from GE during that one-week period, we hosted six major events, including an energy thought leadership conference with The Economist called Africa Ascending. We announced more than $2 billion in investments in facility development, skills training, and new sustainability initiatives. And we held over 100 meetings with heads of state and ministers. 
Key deliverables for GE related to the summit include several billion dollars in rail, power generation, healthcare, and aviation deals across the continent, as well as related scholarships, training, and technical support for African students, patients, workers, and healthcare professionals. One I might highlight in particular is our work with mobile ultrasound, so-called V-scans. We're working with midwives in Ghana and Nigeria to give them the training that they need so they can use this new mobile technology to provide healthcare in rural regions. GE's engagement with the summit is ongoing. Uh, our CEO for Africa, Jay Ireland, has been appointed to the President's Advisory Committee on Doing Business in Africa, and we're actively working with the Commerce Department now in preparing recommendations on infrastructure. Despite all of these good news stories, as you know, the continent suffers from extreme energy poverty that severely limits its growth and its development. But many African companies are taking steps to improve energy access. Afrosol Energy, a four-year-old Kenyan company, is looking to turn waste into fuel to power Nairobi's slums and rural neighborhoods. This is but one of several African companies who have won awards and grants from GE, USAID, and the US Africa Development Foundation for innovations using renewable distributed power solutions. These and other distributed power solutions can help address the needs of Africa these include small-scale power sources from 100 kilowatts to 100 megawatts that run on fuel from solar, from fuel cells, from gas, from diesel, and even wind. To be clear, though, these distributed power solutions, even though they are quite strong in Africa, will only play a complementary role. Africa will still need centralized and large-scale gas and power grids in order to deal with urbanization and industrialization. Building on these models, gas-to-power initiatives are a way to make power available to people who need it, especially in a place like Africa, which is endowed with 400 trillion cubic feet of gas reserves. We see a tremendous opportunity to use gas-to-power initiatives to address the energy access in Africa. The basic concept entails convening stakeholders, governments, developers, fuel suppliers, equipment providers, and financiers to craft a workable, holistic approach to identifying and delivering gas resources to add new power generation capacity where it is needed. The best example of this is in Ghana, the Ghana 1000 project. This is a signature Power Africa project that has involved an entire whole-of-government approach with MCC, USAID, Exim, OPIC, and the US government as a whole. This project consists of a floating storage and regasification unit, the first in sub-Saharan Africa, and related infrastructure for the import and domestic use of LNG. This will be used to power over 1,300 megawatts of combined cycle power in western Ghana. This will have a long-term impact in Ghana and throughout the region because it will provide lower emissions, it will provide the first opportunity to use LNG in this way, it will displace diesel and also provide opportunities for distributed power as well as powering regions and cities. When it is complete, we believe that the Ghana 1000 will be a model project that can be replicated across the continent. Another place where we need to be focusing on gas to power is Nigeria. As you know, this is one of the largest uh, countries on the continent and they have some of the largest gas reserves in the world, yet they have very, very little power. There are a number of problems in their gas infrastructure. There's flaring, there's reinjection of gas going on well. 
the government has tried to implement a number of privatization initiatives to turn brownfield power plants into new projects and expand the power there, but they're running into a number of obstacles. Investors are beginning to get concerned. This is an area that we have to pay particular attention to if we're going to address energy access in Africa. The opportunities here for the U.S. government are significant. What we see is really a need for government to see projects through from beginning to end. It's not so much the physical barriers, but the procedural barriers that are hanging up projects in sub-Saharan Africa. One particular issue that we need to talk about is the issue of finance. These projects do need finance, and that means Exim and OPIC. These are programs that we have used around Africa. Our customers value these, the African governments value these programs, and we believe that with more flexibility and more reform, that OPIC and Exim can continue to play an important role in developing these projects. We urge the Congress, we urge the administration to renew these important programs. There are a number of other initiatives going on that support this. MCC is beginning to look at cross-border infrastructure projects, which will promote regional integration. Uh, TDA is doing life cycle cost analysis on government procurement that will well position U.S. goods and services vis-a-vis -vis Chinese because it will emphasize quality and maintenance. And finally, the whole array of uh, core trade and finance and development programs need to be continued to be supported and backed up. Uh, I know this committee has worked very hard, for example, on having foreign commercial service officers throughout the continent. Those officers are taking up in places like Angola and Mozambique as we speak, and this is also very important. Let me just also underline that Africa is an incredibly important market to General Electric. It's one that we care deeply about, and we look forward to working with this committee and the U.S. Congress and the administration on ways that we can work together to improve energy access, but also ensure sustainability and higher quality of life across the continent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Renegar. Uh, Ms. Tuttle. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Markey, Senator Isaacson and Senator Coons. Thank you for joining us this morning. And thank you so much for the opportunity to share IBM's views on our challenges and opportunities that we see in Africa. IBM does business in over 170 countries, but several years ago we made a decision to uh, significantly expand our investments across the continent. Ginny Rometty, IBM's chairman, president, and CEO, was one of a select few U.S. CEOs to speak at the U.S. Africa Business Forum, which was a major component of the summit, where she shared IBM's enthusiasm and optimism about the potential of the African economies. IBM has operated in Africa since 1920 and has had a direct presence there since 1939. In 2006, we had offices in four African countries, but today we have a direct presence in 24. IBM launched its first African research lab in 2013, which was our 12th global research lab, where researchers are focused on finding solutions to Africa's most pressing challenges in many of the key areas that you've identified. It's important to remember that information and communication technology is a transformative core enabler that benefits all sectors of the economy. And there's ample cause for optimism that modern technologies and market-based systems will help provide the boost that African countries need to participate fully and successfully in the global community. Key opportunity areas that we see include banking and financial services, telecommunications, energy and utilities, healthcare, government, agriculture, 
retail, and the tech sector. My written testimony includes examples of where IBM is engaging in each of these areas. IBM is keenly focused on building the skills and capacities of Africa's people and institutions and has many ambitious and collaborative initiatives involving academia, government, and enterprises. The Young African Leaders Initiative, or the YALI Network, was highlighted during the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit. IBM is participating, is in part partnering with the U.S. government, working closely with Notre Dame and Yale, where IBM fellows are engaging YALI participants on topics ranging from creativity and leadership to business strategy, social technologies, and financing. IBM also launched several initiatives to help curb the spread of Ebola in West Africa, including a citizen engagement and analytics system in Sierra Leone that enables communities affected by Ebola to communicate their issues and concerns directly to the government. We also donated IBM Connections technology to strengthen Nigeria's Lagos state government's preparedness for future disease outbreaks, and most recently provided a global platform for sharing Ebola-related open data. The U.S. Africa Leaders Summit sent a strong message to the African leaders of the importance of Africa to the United States and to U.S. companies. But we need sustained focus and engagement in order to see real results. Africa is growing rapidly, but doing business in Africa comes with a unique set of challenges. It's a continent of 54 countries, each with its own political, economic, and cultural dynamics, and its own pace of development. The U.S. government can and should continue to play a role in helping open these markets. We face strong competition across the continent from our foreign competitors, whose governments are playing a very active role in providing financial support and strong advocacy for their businesses. The U.S. government has a different set of tools that they bring to the table, including Exim, OPIC, USTDA, USAID, and the MCC. Businesses, clients, and governments want and need certainty and predictability to grow their businesses, and these U.S. government assets need to be reauthorized funded, expanded, and updated to respond to the needs of today's global economy. The U.S. government's focus on helping companies navigate the complexities of doing business in Africa has been invaluable. Budget constraints are a reality, but companies of all sizes are benefiting from the advice, guidance, market insights, and help in connecting companies to potential partners and government officials. Moreover, increasingly, companies are looking for assistance to help resolve business issues and or, privacy and or policy advocacy. As a result, we were very pleased about the Department of Commerce's announcement at the summit that they were opening new offices in Angola, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Mozambique, while expanding their office in Ghana and also reestablishing a position in the Africa Development Bank, all very important for businesses. One of the key initiatives resulting from the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit is the trade facilitation underway with the East African community. Success with the EAC could lead to other regional initiatives that would eliminate barriers and harmonize processes among African nations, ultimately making it easier for U.S. companies to do business. Last month, the U.S. government hosted an East Africa Community Trade Ministerial with the EAC trade ministers, and IBM was one of the companies represented, who represented the business community during the roundtable, where we spoke about areas to expand, areas of focus, and including one area, key area of digital trade facilitation. Now let me turn to the issue of policy engagement and advocacy because this is an area where we really need your help. 
As Africa is becoming more fully integrated into the global economy, governments are wrestling with many of the same policy issues as other governments around the world. How do I attract investment? How do I grow my domestic industry, create jobs, and be globally competitive? How do I improve the skills and talent of my local workforce? And what are the right policies for dealing with issues like privacy and cybersecurity? Governments are looking for models to follow, but we are concerned about a growing trend towards embracing protectionist models, particularly in the area of forced localization or local content requirements. In essence, supporting local industries by discriminating against foreign companies. Forced localization policies are not unique to Africa, but we're seeing a growing trend across the continent. The global economy um, cannot function without constant streams of data or information moving across borders. Data is a vital source of innovation and competitive advantages and advantage, and restrictions can have a negative impact on companies of every size. The internet facilitates exports of goods and services and enables companies, including small and medium-sized enterprises, to have access to global supply chains, innovative services at competitive prices, and participate in the global economy. More and more services are being delivered over the internet, and we're seeing this increase in digital trade. While the U.S. government has begun to engage on this issue, increased focus and attention is needed lest these protectionist policies spread. The goal of growing domestic industries is, is very valid, but forced localization is the wrong approach that could ultimately discourage foreign investment, which is also key to economic growth. In conclusion, again, the summit provided a very important mess, uh, opportunity to send a message to our African counterparts, our African leaders, about the importance of, that Africa holds for U.S. and U.S. companies. But we do need a sustained effort, which is why a hearing today is so important and timely to continue to keep the energy going and focus on Africa. In order for U.S. companies to remain competitive, we need the active support and engagement of the U.S. government, leveraging all the tools that we have at our, at our disposal. Market opening initiatives such as trade facilitation focus of the USCAC cooperation agreement can greatly improve the ease of doing business. And finally, as these markets are maturing, an increased focus and engagement on policy-related advocacy is essential. Forced localization is on the rise around the world and is spreading to the African continent. In particular, we need to encourage governments to embrace policies that facilitate digital trade or cross-border data flows and reject digital protectionism. Data localization requirements could ultimately discourage investment and job creation, stifle innovation, and make the local economies less competitive, which is the opposite of the goal. Thank you again for this opportunity to share IBM's views. Thank you, Ms. Tuttle. Mr. Boyke. Uh, senators, I'm sorry. Uh, Chairman, is that working now? Great. Uh, Chairman Flake, Flake uh, Ranking Member Markey, uh, Senators Isaacson and Coons, I'm grateful for the opportunity to testify today about health and private sector investment in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's an honor to be here. I'm going to make three fundamental points. Uh, Improvements in health in South Africa, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, have been crucial for improved economic performance and investment. That there are recent developments, second, that there are recent developments that show that those improvements are at risk. And third, that U.S. leadership and contributions from the private sector can do something to address this unfinished health agenda in Sub-Saharan Africa. 
Over the last decade, U.S. support for better health in Sub-Saharan Africa has been strong, it's been bipartisan, and it has been cost-effective. The U.S. is the leading funder of global health uh, worldwide. Uh, that funding has accounted for just two-tenths of U.S. spending, but the returns on that investment in Sub-Saharan Africa have been spectacular. Since the rollout of the PEPFAR program, death and disability from HIV has dropped 17% in Sub-Saharan Africa, with more support for childhood immunization and maternal and newborn care. Infant mortality is down nearly 20% in the region over the same period. That means 700,000 children who would have not otherwise reached their fifth birthday are now doing so. That's a tremendous achievement. Uh, premature death and disability from malaria, TB, and other communicable diseases have also declined. But the health gains in Sub-Saharan Africa are not just humanitarian. A decade ago, Coca-Cola reported routinely hiring two workers for every job opening in Sub-Saharan Africa due to the likelihood that one of them would become terminally ill. Now a healthier, more stable labor force is spurring economic growth and investment in the region. A recent Lancet Commission led by former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers concluded life expectancy gains in Sub-Saharan Africa have fueled a nearly 6% annual increase in full income between 2000 and 2011. That is the face, fastest rate of growth in the world on that metric. And that is one reason why U.S. private sector investments in Sub-Saharan Africa over the last decade have been so profitable. Wealthier Sub-Saharan African countries are less aid dependent, they're more stable, and they're better trade and strategic partners for the United States. And it is based on that potential uh, that the White House was motivated to hold the first U.S.-Africa summit last year. In recent months, however, uh, developments have shown that these health gains are fragile. I'll point to two examples. First, and of course most notably, is the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Prior to the current outbreak, Ebola had killed fewer than 2,000 people in 28 separate outbreaks, all in Central Africa, over the 40-year period since it was identified uh, in 1976, almost 40-year period. The current Ebola outbreak has killed five times that number, with enough cases spreading internationally to dominate nightly news and to affect the U recent U.S. elections. What's the difference? With greater trade and travel to and within the region, emerging infectious diseases like Ebola are less likely to burn out in rural villages and more likely to reach crowded cities with limited health systems. Sub-Saharan Africa has the fastest rate of urbanization in the world, but it is mostly in low and medium-sized cities with little public infrastructure. Ebola is not likely to be the last outbreak uh, in the region, and it has proven expensive already uh, in, this, in this particular outbreak. Uh, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea will lose $1.6 in economic output in 2015 alone, according to the World Bank, which is more than 12% of their combined GDP. Uh, there are additional costs regionally as well. A second example of uh, the health challenges in the region is the stunningly fast increase of heart disease, cancer, and other non-communicable diseases. A new Council on Foreign Relations Task Force, co-chaired by former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels and US national, former U.S. National Security Advisor Tom Donilon, 
found that NCDs are increasing much faster in much younger people with far worse outcomes in Sub-Saharan Africa than we've ever seen before. How fast? Death and disability from NCDs uh, increased 33% since 2000 in the region, which is more than 200% faster than the rate of decline of infectious diseases in that region. These chronic diseases now cause as much death and disability as HIV, malaria, and maternal disorders combined in Sub-Saharan Africa. 80% of that burden arise, arises in populations 59 and younger. These are not, these, the rate of the increase of these diseases is not driven by success. The major drivers of NCDs are the same as the Ebola outbreak. There are limited preventative and chronic uh, health systems, persistent poverty, and risk fueled by urbanization and change trade, mostly producing urban, uh, pollution, inadequate nutrition, and increased tobacco use. The good news is that uh, progress on the unfinished health agenda in Sub-Saharan Africa is possible. There's a critical need for more investment in public health systems in the region, especially primary care, laboratories, surveillance systems, and critical care facilities. Recent resources that Congress has put forward as part of the global health security agenda provide an excellent start. Despite unhealthier habits, premature death and disability from non-communicable diseases have declined dramatically in the United States and other high-income countries. Many of the tools and policies that have fueled that decline are cheap, they're effective, but not widely implemented in Sub-Saharan Africa. They could be with well-established global health strategies and platforms, and I refer you to uh, the task force report uh, for those, uh, those strategies. Finally, the private sector has an important role to play here. The private sector is best suited to invent and adapt technologies for diagnosis, prevention, treatment of both emerging infectious diseases and these non-communicable diseases in low infrastructure settings. It also has natural concerns for and opportunities for improving the health and productivity of their workforces and the size and purchasing power of their consumer base. These concerns played a large role in the international response to HIV. In conclusion, U.S. and private sector leadership on health in Africa is important now as it has been in the past and for the same reasons. Inclusive economies and investment presuppose healthier and more productive lives. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mr. Boyke. Thank all of you for your testimony, and uh, we'll start a uh, round of questions. And uh, Mr. Leo, first, you mentioned that in your testimony that um, OPIC needs some serious reforms, and one of the problems that constrains its activity, according to your testimony, is that uh, the, we have the carbon emissions cap. Uh, you say that it has effectively pushed the agency out of all natural gas projects in the world's poorest countries. Uh, I, I met with OPEC officials a few days ago in my office. They claim that uh, the, uh, the regulations that they have and the, the, the carbon cap that's been, that has been dealt with in appropriation bills here is not a constraint on their activities. Uh, can you tell me how it is and uh, what uh, we ought to do in Congress to, to remedy that? Thank you. It's, it's an excellent question. I think it's a question that has a lot of strategic importance as well. Um, I think one of the central issues on the impact of the carbon cap is around predictability. If, if we look at power projects anywhere in the world, but particularly in Africa, that have a, 
development life cycle of several years, three, five, seven years, depending on the country, depending on the context. <clears throat> the approaches that U.S. investors or private companies will take uh, will be impacted upon predictability. So I think what we have found um, in the last several years, particularly since the cap was put in place, is that companies stopped going to seek support from the Overseas Private Investment Corporation because they, um, they weren't sure if they, it was going to be in a position to help. And particularly now where you have a cap that is dealt with on a year-by-year -year basis, that is still a high-risk venture for many companies. And if they think about getting far into the stage, having a significant percentage of their project capital evaporate in the middle of a deal, it could be catastrophic when they've already had legal expenses and a number of other things that have gone in. So I think predictability and certainty is, is a very big issue. Now, having said that, since the cap was temporarily lifted, my impression talking with a range of different power developers, um, uh, and there aren't that many of them that are engaged that are American, uh, they have increasingly gone to OPEC seeking support and help of a variety of um, a, a varied nature, whether it's insurance or um, investment um, or loans, excuse me, et cetera. Uh, and um, I've, I've been told that the list of projects that OPIC is currently looking at that are of natural gas nature is actually quite long. And some of these um, uh, are very large, uh, like a couple of projects in Nigeria. Uh, the, some of the Ghana projects were brought up earlier. The scale, if the carbon cap was reintroduced, would absolutely blow what OPIC is able to do in a single project. I mean, basically, historically, they've been able to do one medium-sized gas-fired plant globally per year. And uh, the scale of the need, the scale of the demand is just far, far, far exceeds that. Well, thank you. Mr. Renegar, uh, you talked about, uh, um, you know, in Africa, obviously, with the, telecommunications, uh, many countries have been able to kind of leapfrog some of the technology, and some of that is possible in the energy sector, but you mentioned that uh, in your testimony that there are uh, constraints there, that that only goes so far. Do you want to elaborate a little on that? Uh, what uh, benefit are there to renewables, but where are the limits as well? Push your button. Thank you, Senator. We agree that renewables do have a role to play uh, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, as, as well as distributed power solutions. Uh, the reality is, though, when you have a, a continent that is surrounded by 400 million uh, trillion cubic feet of gas, that, that gas ought to be deployed, because gas, in fact, is uh, a clean fuel. That gas can displace diesel. Uh, and other dirtier fuels, and, and also gas, because it can be brought on uh, relatively quickly with these gas-to-power projects, has the ability to address the energy access issues relatively quickly. You also need baseload power, uh, wind, solar, distributed power, uh, biomass. All of these are technologies that can and should be deployed. 
what we see is a portfolio of technologies to address the massive uh, need for more energy in, in sub-Saharan Africa. But given the resources that they have, given the needs of for baseload power to create stability on the grid, because the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine, there isn't always biomass nearby. Also, the challenge of having the fuel source and the power you know, within proximity to where the need is, is another challenge that has to be managed. And so gas will always play a significant role in sub-Saharan Africa for the foreseeable future, and it has to be the central point of departure for addressing the need and then use the other technologies where they're needed to do it for smaller scale or for smaller needs or for individual industrial applications. Thank you. Ms. Tuttle, you spent uh, a lot of time in your testimony talking about the growing trend of protectionism. And uh, you mentioned the, the need for, uh, for us to address it here, or government to government. Uh, what is the private sector doing in that regard? Or how are you uh, trying, as, uh, what's IBM doing and other companies? Uh, are you making, uh, obviously, are you trying to remedy these situations uh, on your own? And, and it, 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 is there a need for us to step in at this point? Is it getting that bad? Yes. Thank you, Senator. The, the IBM and members of the business community have been highlighting these issues. As I said in my testimony, forced localization is not an issue that's unique to Africa. We've seen it in China, Brazil, Argentina, all around the world, in, in Asia as well. Um, where countries are starting to put these kinds of policies in place. It, and now we're seeing the African countries who are looking at other countries saying, well, what did China do? What did Brazil do? How can I replicate what I view as their success to move myself up this to become more globally competitive? U.S. companies, uh, we have been up talking to Congress about this issue for several years. We've also um, been working with the administration, sent letters to the president and USTR, encouraging them to include language in trade agreements to try to address this concern. The 2014 Trade Promotion Authority legislation has some, actually some excellent language in there to try to make sure that we guard against some of the protectionist policies that we're seeing. And we're look, looking to have that language included in the spring version of the, of the uh, bill that's coming up. So we're doing a whole host of things. On the ground and in, in countries, yes, we are absolutely engaging with the governments on a one-on-one -on -one basis, both as a community uh, and encouraging them that if they, too, for their own local companies, if they implement these kinds of policies and then their next-door neighbor implements a similar kind of a policy, then their own companies will have no export market mm -hmm. in order to invest in. So we're encouraging them strongly to, to, to look at other options, and that's where, again, where the U.S. government can come in and help. You know, if I think about all of our challenges in dealing with China, we always said it was a three-tier approach, right? You have a carrot, a stick, and a win-win. And we have an opportunity with this positive engagement with the African countries that was established by the summit to try to focus more on the win-win, use less of the stick, and often obviously have some of the incentives as well. But I think we have to have a more concerted effort. There's an opportunity. Nigeria is a, the largest economy on the continent, and they have a very aggressive, the worst one we've seen, local content policy impacting ICT. So if it starts there and it starts to roll across the continent, then yes, we do have some concerns. So we see an opportunity for now for the government to lean forward and get more engaged and to highlight this issue. All right. Thank you, Thank Mr. Markey. You.
Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Boyke, your report is quite uh, startling that heart disease and cancer is now the global health crisis in Africa, uh, surpassing HIV, malaria, maternal disorders combined. That's where the death rate is. That's what's causing a lot of problems in the country. So what, uh, on the continent, what, what can the United States do uh, in partnering with the private sector in order to deal with this issue, to play a larger role? Uh, to uh, help uh, Africa with this issue. Uh, thank you, Ranking Member, for the, uh, the great question. The long-term solution to chronic diseases in Sub-Saharan Africa is the same as it is here. It is uh, in the United States. It is functional health systems. It's more sensible agricultural <clears throat> policies. It's uh, better urban design. Uh, but the fact that they have this long-term task ahead of them in doing what we've largely done or started to do over decades uh, shouldn't uh, distort from the fact that they, uh, there's much that can be done in the short term. Nobody waited for functional health systems to intervene on HIV in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, if there were shovel-ready uh, objectives that could be pursued now, we pursued them where they... Uh, could, uh, could save um, people's lives. The task force report put out or suggested three areas where we've made tremendous progress uh, and that could be extended to sub-Saharan African countries uh, for, for cheap. Uh, the first basket, again, are these shovel-ready interventions and there I would put in uh, low-cost uh, care for hypertension and cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease, premature deaths from cardiovascular disease in the United States have dropped over 40% over the last 20 years. Uh, it's mostly uh, products, uh, generic drugs, beta blockers, statins that could easily be extended using existing platforms. Vaccinations for cervical cancer and hepatitis B, which causes liver cancer. Uh, something, again, that can be done through existing platforms at a reasonable cost. Tobacco control. Uh, not uh, uh, United States, every state in the United States has tobacco taxes and restrictions on tobacco advertising. This is largely not the case in Sub-Saharan Africa, and there's indications that they're increasingly being targeted uh, for expanding the market in that setting. The second area, and this is particularly a role for the private sector, is adapting existing technologies that have made uh, good progress on cancers uh, in high-income settings but haven't been extended to low, lower-income settings. Uh, here in particular, you'd point out breast cancer, which has increased over 100% in the last two decades in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, biopsies, mammography, those types of tools are largely unavailable and not uh, usable in low-resource settings but could, could be changed. Uh, diabetes uh, treatment falls in this category as well. The last area that I would mention there that was put forward in the task force report is uh, there's a real opportunity for the United States and uh, low and middle income countries in sub-Saharan Africa to learn from one another on addressing this challenge moving forward. We are certainly not perfect. We have much higher rates of uh, risk factors uh, than these countries do. The obesity rate in the United States is four times higher than it is in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, the approaches on population-based prevention and lower-cost chronic care 
can really do a great deal of uh, good in both settings, and it's an opportunity to work together. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Mr. Renegar, can you talk a little bit about uh, corruption in the energy sector in sub-Saharan Africa and uh, what uh, uh, your view is with regard to whether or not actions taken against it are improving uh, or worsening? Thank you, Senator. It's, it's a very good question. And I think when we're talking about doing business in Africa, this is one of the central points that, that has to be addressed, particularly for American companies uh, going into sub-Saharan Africa. Our experience- In the energy sector in particular. Yeah, in the energy sector in particular. Our experience uh, has been relatively good in, in this area because we have the ability to do what I would call more of a, a top-down approach. So a lot of the, the projects that we're involved in, we put them in the context of broader GE engagement in the particular country. So Nigeria, for example, which is one of the countries that people tend to talk about most, we have put in place what we call a company-to-country agreement, or, or MOU, between GE and the government of Nigeria, where we lay out our strategic priorities across a number of areas. Energy, of course, is one of them. And we use this as a mechanism to consult regularly with the president and his ministers on our key projects. And so by do you tie your investment strategy to uh, saying you don't want to be involved in, in activities that um, have corruption? Is that, is that the understanding that you have as GE goes into a country? Absolutely, and we use the, the, uh, the, the flexibility and availability of our dialogues with their ministers and their leadership to always drive home that we're there to do business and to do it in the right way, and it gives us the mechanism to bring up any issues that come up, and I think what happens is the bureaucracy, the lower down levels know that when they're dealing with an American company who regularly talks to the government, they can't make those kinds of requests. What I, what I, what I would add, Senator, is I think one of the, the ways that we can best get at this corruption is to use the tools of better government procurement policy, better customs policy, better trade facilitation, because so a lot me, of So can I just go to that? So with regard to Power Africa, for example, how can we use that to leverage U.S. investment in the energy sector as a way of extracting uh, anti-corruption protections built around those programs? How can we do that? Well, uh, I, I think there are, there are a number of things that we, we do do. Uh, first, you know, when you're doing a Power Africa project, you often will also be getting advocacy from the Commerce Department. The Commerce Department has an anti-corruption clause in their advocacy uh, work that you and all of the people on the project have to certify that there's no corruption in the project. So that gives you the certification and the hook. The other thing that Power Africa is doing is putting uh, advisors embedded in, in the ministries uh, who can uh, help the bureaucracy work through projects doing it the right way. The final point is the, once you shine the bright light of Power Africa or the bright light of a U.S. company or a U.S. government interest on a project, it sanitizes it to a certain extent. Yeah, and I think that's very important because that gives us a reach into these countries, into the governments uh, who would want an expanded role for the U.S. government and uh, in this investment sector. So the more that we do it is the more leverage we have in rooting out the corruption or putting in place a regime that reduces corruption 
uh, in the energy sector in that country. Is that what you're saying? Abs absolutely. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Markey quoted Robert Kennedy's famous quote from about Africa years ago. There's another quote that he made in Africa, in Biafra, where they had a famine, where he said, sometimes people see things as they are and ask why. I see things as they never were and ask why not. I think Africa's at a why not point. I think Africa's at a point where it can grow and become a major factor economically as a trade partner with the United States as well as a political power of the United States. But there are three things that y'all have mentioned that I see are impediments. One is corruption. One is forced localization, and one is the lack of reliable energy to have manufacturing and jobs for the African people. Mr. Reniger answered the corruption question for GE. Ms. Tuttle, IBM's investments, have you run into corruption problems in Africa, or what do you do to address the potential of corruption? So, thank you, Senator. IBM has a very, very robust uh, policy against corruption. We have an annual training, a global training for each one of our employees to uh, reinforce and sign off on our business conduct guidelines in opposition to uh, any corruption activities. I will tell you too that we put specific focus as we were going into the region on ethics training and we have a major part of our, our uh, company, our trust and compliance focus within the legal function that does regular training uh, multiple times a year in ensuring that, that our employees themselves are, um, are aware, of the, uh, aware of the pitfalls, the dangers and avoiding any engagement with corruption. I will say too that you know, Dell was just making a very important point, and that is, again, uh, if there's no, there's there's always going to be some demand there, there that we're seeing an increase, but in, of demand, but it's lessening over time as as the the government officials as you're dealing with more and more with U.S. companies, they know that these companies are bound by the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and we're seeing a lessening, at least, of the corruption. Uh, encountering that we we're encountering with the businesses. So it's important too, just as you all are were touting, U.S. companies are not engaging, you know, we're in a campaign against corruption, and when you're doing business with a uh, U.S. company, the governments are increasingly aware of that fact. Thank you very much Thank to you. both of you. Thanks for your investment in the continent of Africa. Mr. Leo, in your testimony, you talked about the Congress should modernize the U.S. development finance tools by creating a modern U.S. development finance corporation and by making modest reforms to OPEC. On those modest reforms, to, I had a visit by, from OPEC officials the other day, and they talked about going into the equity business. Are you familiar with that? Is that one of the modest reforms you're talking about? On the, I th in, in terms of the reforms, I think they largely focus around making sure that U.S. development finance tools reflect the needs in current market dynamics, both for promoting U.S. investors, but also advancing U.S. development policy abroad. Um, and in that context, where OPIC finds itself right now is that they have very limited tools. They, they can do a couple of things. A, a number of the other tools, um, and frankly, including equity authority, is housed elsewhere in the government. So USAID has that authority right now. Uh, feasibility studies are at a different agency. Um, other types of technical assistance are spread across half a dozen different agencies. They're not housed under one roof. 
that's able to bring them all together in a seamless way and in an effective, efficient, and highly accountable way. So equity, uh, equity is you know, in the, I, I think should have consideration. I realize that there are strong views for or against it. Um, I think there are lessons from other peer institutions, particularly European institutions, that have used it in a, in a limited way uh, and in an impactful way for, for development priorities and development outcomes. Um, but like I said, it already exists and is being used, in other areas. Uh, but, it's, but it's by USAID, it's in a, in a disjointed way compared to OPIC. Ms. Tuttle, I appreciate you mentioned forced localization. Senator Coons and I are dealing with an issue regarding poultry, which is certainly not high tech, but it's certainly a major trade item for Georgia and Delaware. And forced localization in South Africa has kind of caused some barriers to chickens from Delaware and Georgia getting into South Africa. Are some of the other, is the same thing true with technology? Are they trying to force local use of technology and development to keep people like IBM out? Uh, yes, I mean, when, I think in many of the countries, what we started, they had, um, we started seeing it manifested in the petroleum industry, where we started seeing some forced localization. Then the ICT sector in particular, we're starting to see, again, this is a growth, they see this as a growth engine for their economies. So they are starting to target that. How do we, cr this is a way we can bring our local domestic industry up and reduce our, our, uh, benef our in, uh, dependencies on imports. So yes, we're starting to see it more and more, but I think the important thing, and this was a point I made in my testimony about how IT has an impact across all sectors. When we were speaking with the Nigerian officials, someone from Citi, Citibank said, you must understand, I mean, more and more their services are being delivered cross-border. So if you're having an impact, impeding IBM's ability to do move the data, then they're uh, a service provider to me, that also impacts my ability to move information across border. But we're seeing this in, in everything from local manufacturing, local employment quotas, uh, local product development, local IP, technology transfer. Yes, it's important that companies work together. And to be honest, in many ways, we're already doing many things. We have business partners. We work with local entrepreneurs. We're doing so, businesses are doing so many things. And the question is, what is this negative impact of forcing companies to do things, give up their intellectual property and all of their, tech, their technologies in order to help build the domestic industry while keeping us out creates tremendous problems and potential for U.S. companies as we're investing. And as I said, not just U.S. companies, but their own companies. So are there other alternatives to growing and in, in spurring innovation and spurring the domestic growth of their of their local companies, I think there are. Well, my time's up, but I've got to ask you a kind of a yes or no question. You mentioned Nigeria and Ebola and the role that IBM played in terms of communicating data, if I'm not mistaken. It's an I, mm -hmm. Nigeria was the one African country that actually stopped and contained the outbreak. Was that in part due because of that communication of data? Actually, Nigeria, uh, I guess I would say this. Nigeria, it wasn't linked directly to that. We were, they had already declared victory. But I would say at any point in time, as we've seen in any country, the Ebola crisis could suddenly occur again. So thinking about how do we look forward in the future of Ebola and how are we going to deal with it in anticipation that it could rise someplace else, I think is important consideration to have. Thanks to all the panelists. Thank you. Senator Coons. 
Thank you, Chairman Flake and Ranking Member Markey, and to our witnesses uh, for today's important conversation about how we continue to make progress after uh, the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit of last August. And I appreciate uh, the contributions all of you have made to growing the U.S.-Africa relationship and commenting on it. Mr. Boyke's testimony and the conversation Senator Isaacson just had with Ms. Tuttle about Ebola is a reminder that um, the legacy of PEPFAR and a lot of our investment in modernizing healthcare systems in some countries like Nigeria show a very different outcome than we saw in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. And there's reason for us to continue to invest um, in preventive systems, in changing um, the ground game in terms of healthcare. And I found your testimony particularly um, interesting in terms of the challenge of what we do next. But let me turn, if I might, uh, Ms. Tuttle, to your uh, testimony uh, on the uh, opportunities and the tools that we have in the U.S. government. Um, you commented, uh, XMOPIC, USTDA, USAID, MCC, um, these are the tools in the toolkit. Um, businesses, clients, and governments want and need certainty and predictability to grow their businesses. These USG assets need to be reauthorized, funded, expanded, and updated to meet the needs of today's global economy. I'd, ju I'd just be interested in each of you briefly commenting in your experience with GE, your views on whether this is sufficient or bilateral investment treaties is where we need to go, how this would contribute to healthcare modernization. If just each of you would briefly address what's the most important thing we need to do? Is it simply reauthorize and fund, or is there one significant change you'd recommend we make to this toolkit? Ms. Tuttle, if you'd start. Um. Ben made a comment, he was talking about a consolidation of the resources. And I would say that's, that would be something that we should take a fresh look at what is the best approach. Each of these, these uh, organizations and functions have a different uh, mission, different focus. It is a complex, uh, it, it takes a long time to figure out how do they work, how do I, uh, what is the complexity of their uh, of their f processes? Um, how do I find my way in? And they do take time. And what we find more and more in this world is that there's less and less time and patience. And when funding is needed and assistance is needed, the we need it more quickly. And I think that's another issue that the African nations have raised concerns about: is how quickly can the U.S. government respond with some of these tools that they offer? So I think a fresh look consolidating, look look at consolidating and potentially. I would also say that in some instances, you know, we operate in a global economy. And um, of course it has to benefit the U.S. I appreciate that. But, but in many instances, the mandates that were developed for these aid agencies were, were and assistance uh, agencies were looking more at movement of goods over borders. More and more services are delivered. We're talking about global internet, global delivery of services and access to these markets. And so the, when I think about updating these policies, Exum's made some progress in, in changes in policies on cross-border delivery of services, but I think we need to look at those things. What does today's world look like, and how do we update their mandates to be responsive to, to today's realities and the needs of the companies? Let, let me ask you and Mr. Regnard just a simple yes or no question on this, because several of these uh, entities are on track now to go away. Their authorizations either expiring or expired. It's uncertain whether they'll be funded. Um, if they disappeared, would private sector mechanisms replace them, or are they essential to your continued growth across the continent? I think they're, in many ways, they're essential. Mr. Ragnar? They're essential, Senator. I, I think the lessons, sorry. 
they're essential programs, Senator, and they would have an adverse impact on our ability to do business in Africa and our ability to compete with, with China and, and other competitors, Japan as well, if, if these tools go away. I would echo the comments. We need to consolidate them. I think the special sauce of Power Africa has been the whole of government approach. Uh, China, Japan come in and say, we'll deliver the solution. We come in and say, go talk to MCC, then go talk to TDA, then go talk to USAID. It's confusing. We need a one-shop-stop approach. The other point I would also emphasize is, uh, is cross-border and regional integration. The reality is in order to strengthen the entire system uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, you need to create scale, and the way to create scale is through cross-border infrastructure and regional integration. So make it a one-stop shop and make it more focused on regional integration and cross-border infrastructure, and I think we could really uh, seize a lot of these opportunities better. So absolutely essential, streamline, coordinate, and empower regional. Ben? Mr. Leo, forgive me. Thank you. Uh, I, would, I would just reemphasize the need for consolidation and scale. So I think this is a, is a consistent theme that you're hearing. Uh, I think the, the, the impetus for it stands on its own merit in terms of the of the potential role and impact for supporting growth, opportunity, stability in this increasingly important region. But particularly when you look at what other nations are already doing, they've already moved to scale. They've already consolidated their tools. The Europeans have done this over a process of decades. The new institutions that have been launched by emerging market nations like China, India, Malaysia, Brazil, they're housed under one roof primarily. Um, and and they're at scale. So I think that's what we need to do. This, the two quick piecemeal things, if we were not going at consolidation at scale, I would do a couple of things at OPIC. One, I would look at the admin budget. They have an underutilized capital base right now because they don't have enough people to do deals in a rigorous way. Uh, and then I would implement a couple of reforms around transparency, tracking impact, and publicly reporting it and making sure that there's explicit criteria that they only do deals that are purely additional. And then bilateral investment treaties. It's a highly underutilized tool. Senator Isaacson and I are um, eager to move the African Growth and Opportunity Act forward, but recognize that that's simply extending the current uh, relationship. Um, my last question would be briefly to you. Um, why aren't there more bilateral investment treaties between the United States and Africa when our European competitors or Asian competitors have many more is the challenge with us, is the challenge with our African potential partners, why not more bids? I think there's two or three interrelated factors on this. One, it hasn't been a message that has emanated strongly from Washington that this is what we want to see happen. Instead, we've been talking about these trade and investment framework agreements, which gather once or twice a year, and we have a broad-ranging conversation, but nothing that's actually particularly impactful. Uh, so I think it's a lack of political political messaging that's coming from USTR and from Washington. If President Obama had stood on the stage at the business summit last August and said, I invite every African government who wants to attract investment to negotiate a bit with me, he would have gotten a lot of takers. So that's one challenge. Um, the, the second challenge is our new model bit, our new template, is very complex. It's complex for reasons. It's given more public policy flexibility, but it's more difficult to negotiate now, particularly when you look at the other template agreements from, uh, from our competitors. So that's a challenge we're going to have to address, but there are a couple of ways of doing that. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Boyke wanted to respond, if you mind, is that, please? 
I just wanted to respond to the point on trade investment. Um, it's, uh, I'm very supportive of uh, increased trade and investment with uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. I spent uh, much of my career working at USTR negotiating such agreements. I'm supportive for that reason too. Uh, that said, I, I would want to throw in one other reason why you're seeing less investment agreements being concluded in Sub-Saharan Africa, and that's because of concerns over dispute resolution, which extend beyond Sub-Saharan Africa, but they're particularly true in Sub-Saharan Africa. South Africa has begun a reevaluation process of all its bits. It has withdrawn from several. Uh, that's going on. Uh, that process has begun in other sub-Saharan African countries as well. There has never been a dispute under investor state that has found non-discriminatory regulations to be expropriation. That said, there have been a lot of cases brought recently, particularly by the tobacco industry, and that has spooked countries, and that's what's really leading to uh, this reevaluation process. There's a lot of concerns. This is something that will be relevant for our ongoing U.S. trade negotiations and something to watch. And if I hear you right in terms of the impact of health, um, reducing the rate of growth of tobacco use and consumption is probably one of the single biggest factors in non-communicable disease growth in sub-Saharan Africa. That's absolutely right. It's uh, the second leading health risk globally. Uh, it is consumption is still relatively low in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but it growing fast and as incomes rise, it's, it's a big concern. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Chairman, um, Ranking Member Mark, you had a unanimous consent request. I, I thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I would just uh, ask to include in the record a report by the International Renewable Energy Agency future, uh, entitled Africa's Renewable Future. Costs of wind and solar are falling dramatically. Globally, half of all new electricity capacity being added each year is renewable. So I think that we should just get prepared to be very, very surprised by how rapidly it grows. And I just ask unanimous consent that it be included. Without objection. I just want to thank the panel uh, for your time. And uh, this has been extremely enlightening. Uh, thank you for the valuable testimony, uh, innovative ideas. We look forward to following up with you. And uh, um, I, I just uh, appreciate uh, the time and effort you put into your statements. Uh, and, uh, and also into your testimony here and the answer to the question. Uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business today. And with the thanks of the committee, uh, this hearing is now adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>